I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, welcome to The Discomfort Practice. I'm here today with Razan Ibrahim, and she is an Irish-Syrian journalist and activist. She arrived in Ireland to do her MA at the University of Limerick. And we'll get back to the timing of that throughout this interview, but Razan's deeply personal connection to the tragic situation in Syria prompted her to volunteer to help refugees in Greece for two years. And if you're not aware of the situation in Syria, just Google it and you'll get an idea very quickly of Syria's civil war uh, that has divided the country, that has caused a lot of people to have to leave, that has caused a lot of tragedy and death. Razan says, the people I met and the stories I heard from Syrian refugees changed my perspective in life. She gave a speech with the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon in Ireland in 2016 and was invited by the UN to a high-level meeting in Geneva on global responsibility, sharing about pathways for admission of Syrian refugees. She currently works with Kinzen as a senior editorial analyst researching misinformation on social media. So just a small topic that a lot of us know a lot about. She worked previously to that for six years as an assistant editor at Storyful News Agency, focusing on addressing misinformation in the media, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, and had colleagues, obviously, who focused on other global regions, so has a good overview. Razan provided the New York Times additional research to the Pulitzer Prize-awarded visual investigation in 2020 and was awarded the International Woman of the Year by Irish Tatler in 2016. And she also sits on the Amnesty National Board in Ireland. So quite a high profile, quite a passionate, ethos-driven career in journalism. And we're having this conversation today because obviously we are in a world that needs change, where there is huge inequality, conflict, (laughs) climate change, social breakdown, where systems are crumbling and some people are getting more conscious and others are not. And they're just retiring back into a natural fear which is not productive. So what we're here to talk about today is how do we make the world a better place? How does Razan's experience give her a really unique perspective on that as a journalist and as somebody who accidentally became a refugee because she was away from her country when things just sort of fell apart? So this podcast, this conversation today is all about reprogramming what we reach for in moments of discomfort because the only way forward is into the unknown. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that. And we need to be together fighting on the same side. So welcome, Razan. Thank you so much, Betsy, for the beautiful introduction. And I'm super excited to be with you today and dive in to a lot of topics, exciting topics, personal, uh, international, uh, media, misinformation, and all of that. Really looking forward for it. It's such a treat to interview a journalist, a fellow media professional, because there's a little bit of a polish and we understand the back and forth in a different way. And I love the guests that I interview who don't necessarily have media training, but I kind of enjoy this little polished dance that's a bit more like tango, I think. So I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. And just to let you actually, Betsy, I started my journalism uh, very late. If we are going to consider that late, like Mm. I'd say six years ago only, 
So, I mean, that's why like it's something I love and I'm passionate about. And I think this is really important for any journalist passion and the motivation to do more and investigate and discover and research. Mm, And we definitely are living in a world where if you can be poised on Zoom and online and on camera, you can reach a much wider audience. So, yeah, I'm really pleased to be talking to you in from Barcelona to Dublin today. So, yeah, this whole pandemic has just given us greater reach to each other, a greater ability to connect. So I'm really pleased about that, actually. Absolutely. So first question is always the same, and that is what's an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life, that's shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Actually, when I was looking back at my history and childhood, there are many occasions. There are not only one specific moment, but I remember like one of the stories I was at the university. I did my undergrad in English language literature. So Mm -hmm. I did English literature, American literature, and also Irish literature. So I was so in love with literature at that time. And we had one class, which is about American poets, and in particular, Edgar Allan Poe. So we were around 1,000 students in one theater. And I remember our English teacher said, we have a new poem by Edgar Allan Poe. Who would like to read that poem? Nobody raised their hands. Literally from 1,000 students, nobody raised their hands. This is when actually come a changing moment because I loved Edgar Allan Poe poems. And I've been reading his poems in my small little room every day, every night. So, and I felt so passionate that I want to, my voice to be heard. I want to say his poetry, but I had low self-esteem and little confidence. And especially you are going to speak in front of a thousand students who are <laughs> going to be critical, who are going to be judgmental, etc. And especially English is not my first language. So my accent at that time was horrible. Accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And you were how old? Early 20s? I think 19, 20, like mm. around uh, this age. But I remember I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I was telling myself I'm going to do it. At that time I was raising my hand. You know, and the teacher didn't see anyone except me because I was the only one raising their hands and say, hey, this uh, girl at the back, back, back of the theater, would you like to say the poetry? I was like, yeah. So I said it. I think that was a turning point in my life and Mm -hmm. in my personality. This is where I let myself go and do what I feel I want to do, regardless of other people's opinion. I felt at that moment that I want to say this poetry that I am so passionate about, that I love, and I want my voice to be heard. It was at last a challenge for myself, not for anybody else. And this is actually, I opened doors to myself to discover more who I am, who I want to be in the future, what I like. And from that moment, actually started kind of a new a new journey in my life. So that was actually a really important moment. And I always remember it with pride, although wow. it is very small, but kind of changed my life. Getting up and reciting an Edgar Allan poem in front of a thousand people is not yeah. small to a lot of people. Oh, but that's beautiful because you you stepped into acting on your passion and also opening up your voice to the world. And I know 
myself, well, this podcast, but also the speaking I do and the singing I've kind of been forced to do in the past growing up religious, it's a real gift to finally be free to use your voice for your own passions. So I totally get what you're saying and how that shaped who you've ended up becoming. That's a beautiful example. I love it. Absolutely. And once your voice is not shaking anymore, this is when you feel, okay, yeah, I started to get it. I start to be uh, more comfortable. So I had many occasions where my voice was shaking all the time, you know, but then yes, later on, I started to get more confidence, practice, experience. And once you have these, you will express yourself in a better way, like your real self, I'd say. It's also a beautiful rem reminder that I talk a lot about practicing discomfort and all of that is about practicing. You're not going to be good at it right away. You're not going to be not shaky about it. Maybe ever. Some people who are great speakers or newscasters or performers are nervous every single time they step toward the mic or the camera or whatever. But yeah, it's a beautiful illustration of, you know, just continue practicing discomfort because maybe that's still the thing you need to bring into the world. I love that. Absolutely. And I, and I still practice till today. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. nonstop. Here you are on a podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same. I get yeah. this quite regularly, actually, when I have to speak or I have an under a room full of undergrads that I'm addressing. And it's like, feels sometimes like being thrown to the lions. It never stops being scary. Well, let's talk about where you come from. I always love finding out where people come from and what that really means, how that shaped who you are and your sense of identity and your values and what you do now. So you grew up in a very safe time in Syria. And I've read some from some of your past interviews and things about just name checking. You grew up in a very diverse and inclusive society where there were lots of different religions, lots of different types of people in Syria. And what was the richness of that like? Because then we can talk about actually, you know, what's the loss of that? But let's talk about the richness of that diversity and how it shaped your worldview and who you are. Absolutely, Betsy. All my friends were from different religion, different ethnicities. So the last thing for me or for anybody to be interested or to ask is about what religion are you? What ethnicity are you? What we were interested only in human side of the people um, playing games, playing sport, sense of community and the connection between the people. That was the core um, like I'd say component of our society at that time. So Syria in general and the area I came from, as you mentioned, very diverse at the same time inclusive. So traditions all over, you know, like we have, for example, when we have a new neighbors living in our building, etc. So our tradition for the whole building is to bring food for them every day, a new dish every mm. day, a new uh, starter or main course, etc. So that's a sign of welcome to the people. So when we bring them, so the plate will be empty. So now it's, they have to cook for us and give us a, like a full plate, you know, mm -hmm. for So it's like really inclusive society, uh, full of love of culture, music, celebrations. And um, one of the things that I find it uh, was important to formalize who I am. I grew up in a family with no religion. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, for example, I grew up no religion at all, so you could live with us 
10 years and you will never know do the people believe in anything mm. but what we believed in and especially my dad and mom raised that in us is humanity morals ethics this is what we were raised on accepting people loving people helping them that's the core of our family so i grew up with no religion and that's actually made us celebrate all celebrations like ramadan celebration for example Eid al-Adha, Eid um, al-Futr. Then after a few months, we have Easter celebration. <laughs> then we do Christmas. Then we do New Year's Eve. You get me? So it's, yeah. we, we really celebrated all these kinds of celebrations. And we had our Christmas tree every year. And then we will have our Ramadan decoration, etc. So I think that really played a huge role in my personality and my siblings, my parents as well, character. So we became inclusive, understanding people's religion, where they are coming from, respecting religion, ethnicities, etc. But mm. at the same time, we stand our grounds. We have opinion. We have our ideology, for example, you know, so it's uh, all of that, accepting who you are, but at the same time, respecting people's opinion, religion, and ethnicities in general. Oh, that's beautiful. Because I'm also wondering, sort of, you are an Arab woman in a non-Arab country and people probably look at you and make assumptions or they see your name and they make assumptions. And I think it's interesting for listeners to get an insight into what places like Syria are like. They're diverse or they have been previous to the conflict, very diverse places and also have people who aren't practicing any particular religion and are as open-minded as you. And people probably look at you and you do get put into a certain box or people assume certain things about your beliefs just I guess could you just talk about that in, yeah. in terms of discomfort that has caused you or just simply showing up looking the way you look you notice that it causes other people discomfort because they don't actually know anything about you absolutely and you know Betsy when I came to Ireland this is when I started to question who I am mm -hmm. because back home in Syria like it's we all live together you don't think of your identity you know you don't think of that concept but when I came to Ireland and then I started to meet people, I have my own network, etc. So this is when you have, okay, who I am, you know, like, what do I believe? Like, what's my identity? This is the first time when I was starting to question who I am, what is my identity, etc. One of the things that happened to me, I was on in a taxi and the taxi driver, he told me or he asked, I oh, saw so you are from Syria. What religion are you? Are you a Muslim? Are you Christian? Are you Jews? Are you... I was like, that's interesting. This is when I started. I am none of these. It's not like I was ex religion and then I decided to leave that religion. I grew up from that with no religion. So uh, this is when I started to say, OK, that's actually an interesting question. So what is my identity? You know, like uh, who I am and then definitely a lot of discomfort questions asking about my country there are a lot of stereotypical pictures about the region and this is lack of knowledge i believe because the middle east region and even north african region is very particular and extremely extremely diverse mm -hmm. we are sometimes the opposite for example somebody from syria is very different to somebody from morocco or from saudi arabia 
somebody from Egypt are different to people from Lebanon, for example. You get me? So we are extremely diverse. And sometimes people in the West, Europe, US, and this region, they don't understand that this is actually right. You know, they think that we are all the same. We all believe in one religion and we all wear hijab or headscarf, for example. So they don't understand that, no, absolutely not. We are extremely diverse. Women in part of the Middle East, yes, women are, there's discrimination against women. There are parts women are extremely strong, resilient, independent. Some parts women are not like that. Or even in terms of culture, religion, celebration, etc. It's extremely diverse. But I believe part of it, the media mm-hmm. in general, and even the uh, film industry, you know, like uh, that's as well a concept they created around that region, that it's one people, one culture, one religion, and this is completely not true. So I was all my life living in Ireland, always exposed to these kind of questions, but I'm patient and I love to talk to people and I always smile and yeah, okay, let's start conversation about that. So yeah, I mean, I accepted and I like always, I've never feel tired of talking about it. Mm, what a great attitude to have because it's sort of educating people one taxi driver at a time. Yeah, because there is, it's just so easy to paint anyone else with such a big, broad generalization. And I think that's, that's what I want to use this platform in particular to get out there is just that we are all the same, but we're all very different as well. You know, sort of we are connecting as, you know, a Syrian person living in Ireland. I'm an American and British person living in Spain. And we have the same humanist ethos, actually. I came from a very religious Christian background and I'm now, I don't have a particular faith, but I am very spiritual and I believe in the value of humankind. And I want to strive together for a better future. So I think it's just useful to remember this and to actually be having these conversations that can illustrate and hopefully model for people. This is how you have these conversations. Just start talking to someone, just ask them about their life and also be willing to get things wrong because I most certainly have had to learn how to communicate with people from other cultures and religions and, you know, and they're not obligated to forgive me for getting it wrong sometimes, but it's only by getting it wrong that you can get it right and then connect. So Yeah, I really appreciate that insight into the diversity of Syria. And as I've had more friends from Middle Eastern countries in North Africa, it's so funny to hear people talk about like, oh, Lebanese people are like this and Egyptians are like this. And it's just really a good reminder that, you know, I'm from the United States and I'm from Wyoming, which nobody even knows. And so when people act like we're this monolithic group of people and I'm like a New Yorker or a Texan, it just offends me. (laughs) You know, like, well, it's kind of a different, a completely different planet in New York City. It's great, but it's in no way like where I'm from. So I'm interested in hearing more about then the experience of being suddenly a refugee. You know, you left Syria and things were relatively stable and you went to do a master's degree in Ireland and then suddenly this whole civil war happened and you found yourself unable to go back. So what was it like figuring out that you couldn't go back? At that time, I can say it was shocking, especially because I'm very connected to my homeland and very connected to my friends, family, and my memories at that time. But what happened, Betsy, suddenly I lost all 
my identity, my dreams, my passion, my education, all of these identities together, and I became a refugee. So when that happened, you feel that you have now lost all your identity and you have only one label, which is refugee label. And I can't explain to you how humiliating this label is. So a lot of the times I was hiding it Mm. because I felt ashamed and I felt small when I remember that, oh, I am refugee. But then this is when it was kind of as well a turning point where I just like talking to myself, you know, I talk to myself a lot. So that was part of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially sometimes like, okay, I was standing on the mirror and I was like, okay, why I am afraid to say I am refugee. Refugees are people who did not start a war, who did not involved in a war people who are opposing war and they are against war and that's why they fled to another safer place Mm. that's the core we always have to understand what refugee is and how they become refugees they are escaping war for safety and for a better life that's the key in definition of refugees So this is number one. I was like, yeah, it's not my fault. I did not contribute to this war. My only fault is that I escaped war Mm -hmm. and I want to live in a safe place. That was a turning point. I was like, yeah, I have to understand for myself before anybody else. Second, to break the stereotypical pictures on refugees, that some of the media and even the mainstream narrative that refugees come to Europe or come to the U.S., to take the jobs of other people or to go on social welfare Mm -hmm. or not to work, just sit at home and get money from the government. So these kind of narrative, when I hear it most of the times, it really broke my heart. And if I hide my identity as a refugee, I wouldn't be sending a good example for people or fighting these stereotypical pictures on refugees. So I felt kind of responsibility. That I am refugee, I should be proud of it, I should say it out loud and tell people, yes, I am refugee, I am here for safety, but I am productive. I am somebody who is active in the society, I am paying taxes, I suffered at the start, but I am building my steps, you know, Mm -hmm. like building my life step by step, and I'm trying to be successful. Women, at the same time, I am free, I respect people, I respect different religion, identities, ethnicities, Mm -hmm. different opinion, ideologies, all of that. So I felt at that time, yes, I should be more active, and this would not help me on my own, this would help other refugees as well to speak up and show their talent because refugees have a lot of potentials and they are forced to Mm -hmm. leave their lands. They are forced to leave their education, their businesses, their communities for a better life. So as I said, like that was kind of responsibility from me to speak up and help other refugees as well to have voice to be successful in society in their new homes. Mm. That so really brings us nicely to a point I wanted to talk about, which is the importance of language. And I mean, this will lead us quite nicely into misinformation, disinformation, but the importance of language, because what you're talking about is 
humanizing refugees and being an inspiration to others to step forward and be like, these are my talents. These are my skills. I just want to live in a safe place. I'm not here to be threatening. But there has been such a change in language and rhetoric about refugees and migrants and asylum seekers. And most people don't know the difference between those different categories, which are legal categorizations of people. But then it's become this very scary terminology where, you know, Trump talked about invasions of migrants and a surge at the Mexican border. And, you know, political candidates, typically for the far right, talk about floods of refugees. And it turns from this humanitarian obligation to help other human beings who just want to be safe into this fear that we need to protect ourselves from these people who aren't like us and want our stuff. So how do you combat that? How do we create a society in which people do remember that we're all humans and that it is much more fulfilling to live a life of compassion toward others when they're being fed this language that triggers their neurological systems to be afraid how do we combat that absolutely especially at in 2015 2016 the media narrative was about young refugee men mm -hmm. young immigrants focusing most of the time on the men aspect male refugees and forgetting that more than 50 percent of refugees at that time they were women your girls and children but the focus was on specific category to create fear mm. in the society. Using languages, as you mentioned, Betsy, we like, for example, invasion, floods of refugees. And we know that floods are destruction, destructive to the society, to the nature, etc. But they used to use these terms to make people as well afraid of refugees or immigrants. And in general, anybody who is seeking asylum, they are refugees. Then later on in the process, there would be differentiation between immigrant and refugees. But at that specific time, everyone is looking for safety. So we have as well to differentiate that refugees are escaping wars. They want safety. Immigrants as well escaping hard conditions and they want better lives. So I always believe that it is important to, to have distinctive definition of these two. Now, how do we compact that? We have always to highlight personal and human stories of people, to talk to them, see the life from their perspectives, what happened to them, why they are here, why, for example, they crossed the Mediterranean with their children and they know that they all could die. Yeah. Who would do that? Yeah. But they did it. So that is important one to highlight their stories, their human side, and after all, why there is war in that country or that country. That is so important because, Betsy, I really believe the wars are not only local, mm. when we neglect any solution as we international community, when we don't work for solution, it's our responsibility to have solution for war. If we don't find, we definitely find uh, refugees. And I'm going to tell you something really important. Do you think refugees are happy to be refugees? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, in horrific conditions usually. 
Absolutely. It's leaving homes, leaving beautiful culture, leaving families, their land, you know, like, how can you leave your land behind and go? And it's just really hard for any person to leave their land. And especially older people, you know, mm. like people in their 70s, 80s, you know, like, would you ever imagine that somebody in, at that age are going to risk their lives and cross the Mediterranean to be a refugee? Definitely not. So it's so important to highlight the human side of the conflict, human side, their stories, mm -hmm. their personal connection, and definitely always understanding the war and how we failed as international community to help these people to stay in their homes. Yeah, because it's still going on. And I think it's so easy with the news cycles. We always get these bursts of information when it's new. But then it kind of fades into the background. But the reality is people are still taking boats to try to reach Europe. People are still trying to escape places like Syria, North Africa, or Africa, and then crossing through North Africa. And people are still washing up Absolutely. dead on beaches every day. And Betsy, recently, Afghanistan mm -hmm. was another example as well of how we failed to solve the problem, to help the people, but then ended up with people leaving their homes and they shouldn't, but we failed to help them, for them to stay in safer place. So it's really not one example, many examples, unfortunately, that when I look at the wars in general, whether Yemen or Syria or recently Afghanistan, we are failing to understand that we should, before anything else, stop wars help people stay in their homes because their homes are beautiful but we are failing to do that so people are paying consequences and forced to do these dangerous journeys to a safer place you ask a really good question when you say who would do that no one listening to this me i wouldn't want to be forced to leave my home because it was stay and be bombed or captured or in the crossfire or take a very dangerous journey to someplace that clearly doesn't want you and you might die on the way and then they might shuffle you around to camps or your life might be horrible or unknown when you get there. So yeah, it's just, it's a no brainer, but people get caught up in that rhetoric. And I mean, I seriously doubt anyone actually listening to this podcast thinks that because that's not the kind of crowd who will be listening to a podcast on discomfort. But what is one useful thing that maybe we could implant in people's minds to just noodle on? to sort of swirl around on about how important language or maybe being careful about our intake of information is in othering people, not just refugees, but we pick up these really dangerous narratives all around us all the time. So how can we be more conscious of that? What can we do about it? Absolutely. And as you said, it's not only refugees, even people from different religions, mm -hmm. people from different countries. There is always like picking up this language that put them in one label, for example. Now, even if we are going to talk about Islam, for example, it's different variations of Islam. And it's not only one religion. I think Christianity similar as well mm. uh, or that. So there's not one version of that. We need to understand, we need to tell the idea that people are way more interesting than what we know they are more way diverse mm. they have different backgrounds different identities in one and this is what we need to always tell people about that and uh, dialogue chat always opening discussion 
not blocking discussions. I always believe, regardless of how different opinion, different narrative that we talk, especially it's our responsibility, people in the media mm-hmm. and in the activism world, just to open up and listen and speak and chat to people from different opinion. It is important not to be in one bubble and one circle mm-hmm. and only talk to each other because we agree Betsy, on many things. But what we need to do is to open up our broaden and speak to different kind of people who have different opinion, Mm -hmm. different perspective. But it's responsibility, I believe, to talk to them. It's really interesting because we see such a drive, and I'm doing a lot of work on diversity and inclusion for, say, corporates and people who are interested in doing better and having a more diverse workforce and diverse leadership, etc. But what they kind of tend to forget is that that means you're going, you're signing up for a mission in which you're going to be working more closely and possibly even working for people who have a very different life experience from you, who see things very differently from you, who it might be really uncomfortable, you know, sort of in the name of diversity, you're welcoming in views that you're going to have to hash out. And it's going to be better as a result of all of these different viewpoints having to come together and inform solutions. But I think that's what a lot of people forget. Diversity is a bumpy road (laughs) because it means different. And it means different from people like me, different from people like you. But that is ultimately enriching and strengthening. You know, sort of monocultures don't tend to be very strong, even just genetically. So, And their ideas tend to be quite limited. So going out and broadening yourself to other perspectives is going to be sometimes frustrating and confusing and you'll feel a little lost or you'll feel like you got something wrong or somebody's going to piss you off. But it is really rewarding because then you learn so much and also you get a lot of good food at your dinner parties, I've discovered. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. I know. I love getting my different South American and Asian and everybody friends around. Okay. I diverge there into food because I'm hungry. Can you tell? (laughs) But I'm really interested now in talking about like misinformation because we've talked about the importance of language and you are a specialist in misinformation on social media. So how do you debunk fake news? You know, it's important to note that actually misinformation drives hate speech Mm. and it drives this negative connection to communities, um, religions, even refugees. Like the more misinformation we have, the more hate speech we have. So they are in a way or another are connected together. Mm. And that's why it's so important to research that, um, do studies, debunk, and uh, fact check what we see on social media. Why on social media? Because when there is something on social media, it's widely spread like a fire. And unfortunately, Betsy, through my work, mainly negative stories would spread on social media. So there's the negative aspect of post that will create a huge dialogue, discussion, uh, comments, shares, etc. So that's why like, it is so important um, to have, like, to see the connection between misinformation, hate speech, and to tackle that in social media in general. Mm. And is social media in itself an extra challenging medium to do that through because people tend to consume it very quickly? And not in depth, or is that a wrong assumption on my part? No, I think uh, definitely because first you will see a post. Sometimes it is hard to know the truth out of this post, but 
this post saying something uh, using words or vocabulary where it's amplified, for example, or making things small, bigger. Medical statement, although you don't know if these statements are correct or not, but sometimes it drives curiosity from people, especially if people are not really educated about that subject, but they find this information shocking. So they would share it without even checking. And I, that's why I believe it is really responsibility not to share anything on social media before you are sure, because mm-hmm. we will be in a way or another contributing to misinformation that could lead to dangerous outcome. I've certainly been guilty of that. And if you're an activist or you want to do something good for the world, and this is left and right, people don't really show up to do bad things usually. But I've been guilty of that and been like, oh, no, that got fact-checked and I should not have shared. Yeah, hesitate before you share. That's a really good thing to remember. No matter how good your motives, just take a breath. Absolutely. Think before you share, you know, because maybe you will be sharing to thousands of people and that would definitely affect, in a way or another, mm. a lot of narratives. Like you, you, maybe we are feeding part of a smear campaign and we don't know. So that's why it is so its responsibility on social media to share and to know what to share. But when I come back to your question, how do we fact check or how do we debunk uh, stories? There are really many ways uh, of doing that, but I will maybe focus on some aspects. Now, if we are working on a photo or an, a video, usually videos as well are really, they go viral and there is impact of videos more than any other posts in general. So uh, there are many steps. But there are three main steps that we should always think. First, the location of the video, where this video is taken from, what country, what city, etc. Second, the date of the video. Is this video actually six, seven years old or it's now? Is it last week, etc. So that's another aspect of how to verify content. And the third one is who first uploaded that video, especially when we are on social media, definitely there would be somebody who actually posted that video on their platform or a news agency or a local media, etc. So that is important to know who and why they posted. Did they post this video to steer political like rhetoric or narrative or there is some controversy about some topics? We need to understand Is there something behind Mm. why they posted that video? Now, anybody else, of course, we can't do that in one, two minutes. It takes time, especially somebody like myself, who is an expert in debunking and working on these videos. This sometimes would take us half an hour, sometimes Mm -hmm. one hour, sometimes two hours, you know? So it depends as well on the video. And if the video is actually from a country where hard to get access to the location like Syria, Yemen, it's always hard to debunk and fact check these videos. But as I said, like these are some really three important aspects of a video and as well photos. I would deal with the photos the same location, date, source. Mm-hmm. These are the main things that we need to do. Now, when it comes to posts in general and recently medical misinformation, and mm-hmm. that had a huge impact on the world. Um, usually in this case, we'll try to track back where did this misinformation come from? What's the account? Are they people who are super active in spreading misinformation? 
So this is, we need to find the source of these posts in particular. And then definitely we go to reliable sources, medical sources like the WHO, mm -hmm. uh, CDC, and see their information on the website and then start to compare defunct information. And definitely we ask, as well, medical experts on that. Mm. It sounds like you can kind of distill that down quite easily for listeners here, most of whom are in the UK, the US, Australia. And it is just about take a step back and don't share. So you've had a chance to think who's posted this? How old is it? Because there's a, a really surprising amount of information. It's quite old that crops up every once in a while and everybody gets hysterical about it and reshares it. And you're like, guys, this is four years old. I can't believe this is still going around. But also, um, it's interesting to think about those who will never be convinced, you know, those who actually really don't want to pause and think about misinformation. What do you do about those people? <laughs> it's hard. I will tell you uh, one story, for example. There was five years ago, a viral video went uh, on social media and on YouTube was watched hundreds of thousands of times. And the video, the caption of the video says that refugees are attacking a woman etc something like that you know in germany in berlin yeah, i remember this and i was like okay interesting so i was looking at the video i was like that's you know like it's something weird about that video and i looked at it and it's clearly not in berlin not in germany and you can clearly see the arabic signs restaurants you know like you can see clearly see it wow. and then when i was looking okay where is this restaurant oh my god this is in cairo and i was able to match the exact sign in the video of the restaurants to the one in google maps you know so there's no question for me that this is exactly in egypt in that street and the story is not about refugees or attacking women at all it was like kind of young men were fighting which is it happens anywhere in the world <laughs> it's universal so, yeah universal so i was like okay oh my god that's shocking it is going viral but it's completely wrong and misleading mm. and fabricated headline and caption of the video and this is dangerous mm -hmm. because this is where the far right would take that video and reshare it on their fringe groups saying yeah look this is who we are bringing to here. So that was a responsibility from me. So I actually contacted the person and I left a comment on that video saying, just to let you know, this is not in Berlin, this is in Egypt. And I gave all the information why this is in Cairo, in Egypt. All the links and the Google Maps, etc. And I was like, okay, so in this case, I did my part and I'm sure now people will understand so they don't comment, they don't share, etc. I received, I can tell you, dozens of comments. Although I provided facts and there is no question about these facts, they still comment saying, get out of here. You are a liar. Uh, we don't want to. I was like, you know, uh, still, yeah. although I provided all facts, yeah. but they still don't want to hear it. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. Well, confirmation bias. You see the evidence that you're looking for to back yeah. up your view. So back to what do we do? Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, even when I, uh, because recently I worked a lot on the US content as mm. well, misinformation in the US, like I remember as well, I worked on the uh, January 6th insurrection, and then a lot of uh, conspiracy theory in that regard. And still, whatever you provide facts to the people, they still 
don't want to believe you know mm. they still don't want to take it mm. you know although it's like a clear cut look it's one plus one equals two but still they don't want to believe it now what can we do that's maybe the hardest <laughs> yeah. question <laughs> exactly i don't know i don't because also it's as bad on the left as it is in the right and i want to say oh, that yeah, yeah. Because we all look for confirmation of the thing we want to think. So if we want to hate a certain figure or a certain company or a certain anybody, we will believe the things that back that up. And I'm going to say, I used to work for Nestle. And no matter what I said to sort of very well-meaning moral lefties, they would be like, well, of course you would say that you work for Nestle. They're evil. And I'm like, actually, I'm giving you evidence about their good work that they do with like farmers. and yeah. But it just... They were having none of it. And they, they then were like, well, you're a wrong source. <laughs> Even though I was like, it's true. I can vouch. But yeah, it's humans. Absolutely. And polarization in any society, whether it is politics or even in terms of society itself, culture, it's dangerous mm. to be polarized and not listening to each other, accusing each others of labels and uh, accusations that not true you know this is really dangerous now what can we do to back to your question it's something yes. maybe a dream and it's not gonna happen but first i still believe that we need to be patient mm. second we need to listen although betsy and i believe many of the people some people from their own families maybe a dad or a mom or an uncle, sister, brother, they will believe completely of what you believe and they will be maybe believing in something completely wrong because it's medically wrong, you know, it's not fact, etc. But they are our family. Yeah. So we need, can you block your family? We can't. We need to speak to them. We need to talk to them, not blocking people in general and finding any venues that our voices would be heard to a bigger audience, bigger um, like kind of communities, more communities, etc. Not to be limited, just to find more venues to do that. Mm -hmm. Is it possible? Definitely possible, but it is hard, you know, like I've been trying, like definitely it is not easy at all, but it's responsibility to have this uh, mission that yes, we completely disagree with each other, but we need to listen, we need to chat and yeah, like let's, just, you know, have a dialogue. Even we don't agree, but it is important to have human conversation, civilized conversation. Mm. And that's really important. Civilized conversation. I'm going to be vulnerable and just admit that that really hit me. And it's something that's quite a, an uncomfortable thing for me because I'm so incredibly different from my family. And I live very far away and there's a reason for that. And it's just been easier for me to sort of shut down that connection rather than seek to have a dialogue that doesn't, that in which I need to just listen, in which I don't let myself have judgments. And, you know, it's most recently about having a Trump voter family. Two of my siblings voted for Trump for the first time in this last election. And I just have been dealing with so much anger about that because I don't understand how people who I genuinely know are good people who have really great values, but they vote for people who feed hate and fear. And I just don't understand it. So I've kind of chosen to shut down relations because I don't know what to do with it. And I think it's, this is a call for me to step up and be mature and maybe yeah. open those gates of communication again. So there you go. Everybody who's listening to this, you just 
heard me have a little moment. Thank you, Razan. That was uh, absolutely unexpected turn of events in this chat. <laughs> but I tell you, Betsy, you know, from my experience uh, in the Syrian war, Syrian war was extremely polarized as well. Extremely. I can't tell you how much mm. till today. You know, the society is deeply divided. And this is what makes me as well. No, I, I think I want to be somebody who listen to both voices to both sides and find common grounds, you know, like without judging, you know, other people. Although I completely disagree with that or with that, with this, you know, mm. but I think that I, Syrian war taught me a little bit about that. You know, there's no way after all these war, eventually we have to sit on one table and talk and find solutions. So that's what I completely as well see where you are coming from. <laughs> Sometimes it is shocking, but what can we do? We need to listen, yeah. chat. Sometimes, as I said, like be patient, get angry, but try to manage it sometimes. Yeah. And it is much easier to sh just shut off or leave yeah. than it is to engage and be patient and be compassionate yeah. and civilized. So I am taking that on as a challenge because it's highly uncomfortable. It's so easy to just be on my moral high horse over here, far, far away from my family. And actually, I know that they want to connect. So Hi, mom. Hi, dad. We're going to have more phone calls this year. So, yeah. I'm so happy to hear and send them my regards. I will. I'll tell them. This wonderful woman named Razan Ibrahim has been my, my mensch, my absolute inspiration on this. Yeah. So thank you for that. It's been interesting to just note the sort of bubbling effervescent optimism and joy that you have, because, you know, we're talking about being a refugee and it, it can be a pretty heavy topic, but you just bring this lightness and acceptance to our chat about it. So why is that? Why are you so full of light and life and optimistic when others have totally just been taken down by the hardship of being a refugee? Thank you for seeing that. It's not easy, uh, Betsy, but I believe that we live one life and we live once and life is too short. And that's why I want to invest any energy or any positive attitude to help people. My happiness is when I know that I helped this woman in refugee camp to get baby milk for her children. Or I helped this refugee man to get a job, for example. Or this refugee girl to get into education. So doing good is so important and when i see the results when i see how a little bit of help could change people's life and believe me sometimes a smile unexpected smile that as well could change a lot of the attitude and that's what actually makes me go on and go on that's really like connecting with the people having a human connection with them helping them, helping me, accepting people as well, you know, that is really important because eventually what I believe in, it's we live in a small global village mm. and what happens in Damascus will definitely affect what happens in Denmark yeah. and what happens in Aleppo will affect what happens in Dublin or Barcelona or any other place. The idea that we are isolated and we are not affecting each other, this is not true anymore. Mm. So that's why uh, trying to build bridges, 
making people understanding that listen we have a lot of in common and we have differences but these differences are beautiful you know it's something that we need to build more on and appreciate because it's so boring to have a society or a country that it's all the same you know like it's not interesting to live in so just this this idea is important and yeah just day by day you know i live day by day as well i don't have a lot of plans in my life i just live the moment i live the day i enjoy it to the maximum and um, i try to give as much as positive energy to the people around me to my family to my friends to the people around me and because this is helps me as well to be positive and help other people mm, i get the feeling you would be like this no matter what your situation you could have had the most privileged last decade in comparison to you know what's happened since 2015 and you would still be the same so thank you for bringing that to the world and not letting it be rocked by circumstance so this is a great moment to ask what makes you hopeful or excites you about where we're all headed together sometimes i'm not actually very helpful sometimes when i look at the wars uh, in the world uh, syrian war with no solution when i look at yemen other countries, Libya, Afghanistan recently. Um, yes, sometimes actually it hit me. And I always think of us as a human race. We failed many times, and especially recently, where we could have solved problems, but we did not. Climate change as well. This is another thing that it's not going to affect me or only you. It's going to affect the whole world. So there is collective effort that we are not doing. Mm. So this is what we need to understand that and even people who are in decision making like organizations or do anything that we need to understand we can't live in isolation we need to have a collective effort to help each other and make a better world to everyone and to be able to help refugees end wars then we will have a better life because you know, this is what life is about. Mm. So I think, yeah, it is really important to be all connected, united, understanding each other and non-stop working to make people more connected and more close to each other, not isolating them or like making them apart. So that's what I believe in. Oh, that's beautiful because I was going to end with what would you like to leave listeners with? But I think you just did leave listeners with a really beautiful call to action and also a reminder that this isn't just big talk. This isn't just things that need to happen at like UN level or it's you. It's about you and me and it's about you and your friends and it's about you and people that you need to go out and find and have conversations with and connect with. If we all focus on connecting, the world would be a very different place. So go out and connect with someone who you don't think is like you and prove yourself wrong and the world will be different. Absolutely. I have so thoroughly been challenged and enjoyed and been blessed by your energy, Razan. Thank you so much for your time. We will definitely have to get you back on. We can just have a chat through politics and misinformation one of these days because it's going to be the, the happiest chat ever about politics <laughs> and misinformation. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely my pleasure. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And especially when I talked about my life in Syria, I think it is important for people to understand that where we come from, we are human after all. 
um, and all everything as well I chatted with you really enjoyed it and thank you for giving me this beautiful positive and good platform it's my pleasure thank you thanks for getting uncomfortable with me if you enjoyed this podcast leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the discomfort practice patreon page for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change the edge of our superpowers and the edge of changing the world for the better thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. Thank you.